Section 55 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 55 by E. W. Brooks. Chapter 16. The Eastern Provinces from Arcadius to Anastasius. By the death of Theodosius, the eastern throne passed to his incapable elder son, Arcadius, then seventeen years old. While the practical administration was in the hands of the praetorian prefect, Rufinus of Aquitaine, a man of vigor and ability who in the pursuit of ambition and avarice was not limited by scruples. Under these circumstances, a conflict was likely to arise between Rufinus and Stilicho, who was the guardian of the western emperor Honorius, and husband of Theodosius's niece, who also asserted that Theodosius had, on his deathbed, committed both his sons to his care. Rufinus proposed to counterbalance the advantage which his rival possessed in his connection with the imperial family by marrying Arcadius to his own daughter. But unfortunately for him, he had a rival at court in the eunuch Eutropius, a former slave who had risen to the position of Prepositus Sacri Cubiculi, who now profited by the prefect's absence to thwart his scheme. Lucian, whom Rufinus had made count of the east, had refused a request of Eucarius, the emperor's great-uncle, and, upon Arcadius complaining of this, the prefect, to show his own loyalty, made a hasty journey to Antioch and put Lucian to a cruel death. Meanwhile, Eutropius induced Arcadius to betroth himself to Eudoxia, daughter of Bauto the Frank, who had been brought up by a son of Promotus, an enemy of Rufinus, who thus had the mortification of seeing his master united not to his own daughter, but to one who from her upbringing would be bitterly opposed to him. The inferiority of Rufinus was increased by the fact that the best of the eastern troops had accompanied Theodosius to the west, and of these only some of the less efficient had been sent back. The Visigothic Federati had, however, returned to Moesia, and their leader, Alaric, who was now proclaimed king, was quick to profit by the weakness of the government. Professing indignation at not being appointed Magister Militum, he invaded Thrace and advanced to Constantinople while Rufinus, having also to meet an incursion of Caucasian Huns into Asia Minor and Syria, where Antioch was threatened and old Tyre abandoned by its citizens, had no forces to oppose him. He therefore went to the Gothic camp, and, after some negotiations, Alaric withdrew to Macedonia, and after a check from the local forces at Peneus, passed into Thessaly. Stilicho, who, besides desiring to overthrow Rufinus, wished to reunite eastern Illyricum to the western power, treated this as a pretext for interference and starting in early spring he marched with considerable forces to Thessaly, and met the Goths in a wide plain. Probably, however, he did not wish to crush them, and after some months had been spent in skirmishes or negotiations, Rufinus, who feared Stilicho more than Alaric, sent him in the emperor's name in order to evacuate the dominions of Arcadius and send back the eastern troops. To break openly with the east at this time did not suit Stilicho's purpose, and as the eastern forces which comprised a large Gothic contingent were devoted to him, he could attain his primary object in another way. He therefore returned at once, while the eastern army under Gainus the Goth marched to Constantinople. In accordance with custom, the emperor, accompanied by Rufinus, came out to meet the troops, and the soldiers, at a signal from Gainus, fell upon the prefect and cut him to pieces. The emperor's chief adviser was now Eutropius, who appropriated a large part of Rufinus's property and procured the banishment of the two most distinguished generals in the east, Abundantius and Timasius while he entrusted positions of power to such obscure men as Hosius the Cook and Leo the Woolcomber. 
He also gained much obloquy by selling offices, though as the prices were fixed and there was no system of public loans, this was only a convenient method of raising money. As a eunuch, he could not hold any state office. But for this, he partly compensated by transferring some of the powers of the prefect to the master of the offices, and by interfering in matters altogether outside the functions of the chamberlain. Thus, he is said to have acted as a judge, probably on special commission, and to have gone on embassies to the Goths and Huns, from which he returned with military pomp. Finally, he was made a patrician and assumed the consulship, though his name was not admitted to the western Fasti. At first, he was necessarily on good terms with the army, and therefore with Stilicho, but he was no more inclined than Rufinus had been to allow the western regent to direct eastern affairs, and the previous position therefore soon recurred. After Stilicho's retreat, Greece lay at Alaric's mercy, for, perhaps because the army was too much under Stilicho's influence, no force was sent against him, and through the unguarded Thermopylae he marched plundering into Boeotia. Thebes, indeed, was too strong to take, and Athens he entered only under a capitulation. Megara, however, was taken, and, the Isthmus being left undefended, Corinth, Argos, and Sparta also. During 396, Peloponnesus lay under his heel, but early in 397, Stilicho, secure in the support of the eastern army, thought the time had come for another campaign. This time he came by sea to Corinth, and, marching westwards, blockaded the Goths at Folo and Elis. But Eutropius opened negotiations with Gildo, Count of Africa, whose loyalty had long been doubtful to induce him to transfer his allegiance to Arcadius. And the threatening state of affairs made it necessary for Stilicho to return. He allowed Alaric to withdraw to Epirus, probably on the understanding that he would keep the eastern court occupied. Eutropius, however, preferred to satisfy him by the post of Magister Militum in Illyricum and on these terms peace was concluded. Such being the relations between the two courts, it is not surprising to find that some of the eunuch's enemies conspired with the Goth soldiers, the allies of Stilicho, against his life, and that, with the fate of Rufinus before him, he tried to prevent such plots by a law of extraordinary severity. Perhaps for the same reason that no army was sent against Alaric, no support was given to Gildo, but his revolt occupied Stilicho's attention during most of 398. The pacification of Africa was, however, soon followed by Eutropius's fall. Gainus, now Magister Militum, had been strengthening his own position by filling the army with Goths from Moesia, and in spring of 399 an opportunity for action presented itself. Tribigild, commander of the Gothic colonists in Phrygia, having been refused a donative by Eutropius, revolted and ravaged the country, upon which Eutropius offered the money. But Tribigild raised his demands and insisted upon the eunuch's deposition. Gainus, with Leo, the satellite of Eutropius, was sent against him, but while Leo advanced toward the disturbed district, Gainus remained at the Hellespont. Tribigild, on hearing of Leo's approach, marched through Pisidia to Pamphylia, where a large part of his army was cut to pieces by a rustic force under Valentinius, a citizen of Salga, and the rest blockaded between the Avrimathon and the Melas. Leo moved to support the local force, but as he was too indolent and dissolute to maintain discipline, Tribigild was able, by an unexpected attack, to make his way through, while the disorderly forces scattered in all directions, Leo himself perishing in the flight. Tribigild then returned to Phrygia, which he again plundered. Nor was he the only enemy with whom the empire had to contend, for besides the constant incursions of the desert tribes into Egypt and Libya, the Huns were ravaging Thrace, and Vramjapu of Armenia was, at the instigation of the Persian king, attempting to annex the five satrapies north of the Tigris. 
Accordingly, Gainus, with much show of reason, represented to Arcadius that his best course was to grant Tribigild's demand, and, as Eudoxia urged the same, his consent was easily obtained. Eutropius was deposed from his office, and though he had abolished by legal enactment the right of sanctuary possessed by the churches, fled to the altar of St. Sophia, where the bishop, John Chrysostom, who owed his appointment to the eunuch, made use of his presence to preach on the vanity of earthly things, but resisted all attempts to remove him. Finally, he left the church on a promise that his life should be spared, but was deprived of property and honors and banished to Cyprus. As, however, Gainus insisted upon the necessity of his death, he was, on the pretext that the promise applied only to Constantinople, brought back to Chalcedon, tried on a charge of using imperial ornaments, and beheaded. The fall of Eutropius had been effected by a combination between Eudoxia and Gainus, and during the absence of the Goth, who had returned to Phrygia, the empress secured the appointment of Aurelianus to the prefecture in the preference of his brother Caesarius, who was supported by Gainus. After Eutropius's death, she further had herself proclaimed Augusta, and by an innovation which called forth a protest from Honorius, her busts were sent round the provinces like those of emperors. But Gainus had not designed to set Eudoxia in the place of Eutropius. Accordingly, he sent Tribigild, with whom he had joined forces, to Lampsicus, while he himself returned to Chalcedon, and demanded the surrender of three of the principal supporters of the empress, Aurelianus the prefect, Saturninus an ex-consul, and Count John, her chief favorite. Resistance was useless, and Aurelianus and Saturninus crossed to Chalcedon, while John hid himself, probably in a church, but his hiding place was discovered, and the bishop's enemies afterwards asserted that he had betrayed them. The three men were ordered to prepare for death, but when the executioner's sword was at their necks, Gainus stayed his hand and had them conveyed by sea towards the Adriatic, perhaps intending to place them in the hands of Stilicho or Alaric. He next demanded a meeting with the emperor, which took place at Chalcedon, where they both gave mutual oaths of good faith in the church of St. Euphemia. Both the Goth leaders then crossed to Europe. Caesarius was made prefect, and in consequence of the recent troubles was compelled to increase the taxation. But in systematizing the sale of offices by limiting the tenure of each, he seems to have performed an act of advantage to the state and justice to the purchasers. Meanwhile, Gainus was so distributing the Roman troops in the city as to place them at the mercy of the Goths. And then, thinking his will law, he asked that a church within the wall should be given to the Arians. This time, however, the strong orthodoxy of Arcadius and the influence of the bishop caused the demand to be refused. The violent hostility aroused by these events made men believe that the Goths intended to attack the palace, while they, on their side, were seized with a panic which led them to expect an attack from forces which did not exist. Accordingly, Gainus, alleging ill health, retired to the suburban church of St. John, instructing his men to come out singly, and joined him. After the greater part had left the city, a trivial occurrence brought on a scuffle between Goths and the citizens, who attacked the already panic-stricken barbarians with any weapon they could find, and at last the gates were shut and the Goths, enclosed within the city, without cohesion and without leaders, offered little resistance and were mercilessly massacred, while Arcadius found courage to declare Gainus a public enemy and send his guards to support the populace. Next day, the survivors, who had fled to a church that the bishop had given to the Orthodox Goths, were surrounded by the soldiers, and, though none dared to attack them in the church, the roof was stripped off and burning wood thrown in until all perished, in spite of the appeals of Caesarius for a capitulation. The Roman troops were now collected and placed under Fravita, a local pagan goth who had distinguished himself in the time of Theodosius. The attempts of Gainus on the Thracian cities failed, Tripigild was killed, and the lack of provisions compelled the Goths to withdraw to the Chersonese in order to cross to Asia, 
but Frivita had already placed a fleet on the Hellespont to intercept them. They were, however, forced to attempt the passage in rafts, and, these being sunk, most of them were drowned, while Gainus, with the survivors, retreated across the Danube, where he was attacked and killed by Olden the Hun, who sent his head to Constantinople, where it was carried through the city. Shortly before the victory, Aurelianus and other hostages escaped from their guards in Epirus and returned to the capital. And in early 401, Caesarius was deposed and imprisoned, and Aurelianus restored. Some deserters and fugitive slaves, who continued to ravage Thrace, were put down by Frevita. But he was accused of not pressing his advantage against the Goths, and, though acquitted, incurred Eudoxia's enmity, and afterwards fell a victim to the machinations of her satellites. Stilicho's hopes of directing eastern affairs through the army were thus destroyed, and soon afterwards the government was delivered from Alaric, who, having exhausted eastern Illyricum, invaded Italy, and after an indecisive battle at Polentia, was established in western Illyricum as Magister Militum, probably on the understanding that he would help Stilicho to annex eastern Illyricum when the opportunity arose. In other directions, things went less fortunately. By the annihilation of the Goths, the east was left almost without an army and the Isaurian robbers terrorized eastern Asia Minor in Syria, where they took Seleucia and even crossed to Cyprus. Arbazakius the Armenian indeed gained some successes, but he was suspected of corruption and recalled, though by the influence of the empress he escaped punishment. The chief power in the state was now Eudoxia, but there was one man who dared to oppose her, John Chrysostom. As early as 401, he offended her by complaining of some act of oppression, and not only was he constantly preaching against the prevailing luxury and dissipation among the ladies of fashion, of whom she was the leader, but he used the name Herodias and Jezebel, and in one of his sermons employed the word adoxia with an application that could not be mistaken. His popularity was so great that she would hardly have attacked him on this ground alone, but with the help of the ecclesiastical jealousy of the Bishop of Alexandria and the discontent which his high-handed proceedings in the cause of discipline aroused among some of the clergy, she procured his deposition. Popular clamor, however, and a building collapse in the imperial chamber frightened her into recalling him after a few days, and excusing herself by throwing the blame upon others. This reconciliation did not last long. Two months later, a statue of Eudoxia was erected on a spot adjoining the church of St. Irene during divine service, and John, regarding the festivities as an insult to the church, preached a violent sermon against those responsible for them, which the empress took as an attack upon herself. The bishops were therefore again assembled, but the proceedings were protracted, and Arcadius, who in religious matters had something like a will of his own, was hard to move. On the 20th of June, 404, however, the bishop was finally expelled. That night, some of his fanatical partisans set fire to St. Sophia, which was destroyed with the adjoining Senate House, in which many ancient works of art perished. Less than four months afterwards, Eudoxia died from a miscarriage and the period of active misrule from which the East had suffered since 395 came to an end. The prefecture was now entrusted to the capable hands of Anthemius, but the government still had no force to repress the incursions of the Libyan tribes or the Isurian brigands, whose raids continued to the end of the reign. The relations with the West, which had been further embittered by the affair of John Chrysostom, and, while Stilicho lived, a good understanding was impossible. After delays not easy to explain, Stilicho prepared to carry out his compact with Alaric, and, as an earnest of his intention, closed the ports against eastern ships while Alaric invaded Epirus. But, hearing that the usurper Constantine had crossed to Gaul, Stilicho again postponed his eastern expedition, and Alaric, in anger, evacuated the dominions of Arcadius and threatened Italy. At this juncture, Arcadius died, leaving a son, Theodosius, aged seven, who, since the 10th of January, 402, 
had been his father's colleague, and three, perhaps four, daughters. And Stilicho, thinking the time come to carry out his old project of bringing the East under his rule, proposed to send Alaric to Gaul and go himself to Constantinople as the representative of Honorius. But a hostile party secured the emperor's ear, and he was put to death. The ports were then opened and amity restored. The care of the emperor's person was in the hands of Antiochus, a eunuch with Persian connections. But the direction of affairs fell to Anthemius, whose chief advisor was the sophist Troilus, and the period of his administration was one of the most fortunate in the history of the East. The danger from the West had been removed by Stilicho's fall, and on the eastern side the best relations were maintained with Yazdegerd the Persian king, with whom a commercial treaty was made. The military power of the empire had suffered too much to be quickly restored, but we hear no more of Isaurian raids, and it was found possible to send a small force to support Honorius against Alaric. It was only, however, by a combination with subject tribes that the Huns were driven across the Danube, while their tributaries, the Skiri, were captured in vast numbers and enslaved or settled as Coloni in Asia Minor. To prevent such incursions, the fleet of the Danube was strengthened. Other salutary measures were the relief given to the taxpayers of Illyricum in the east, the restoration of the fortifications of the Illyrian cities, and the reorganization of the corn supply of Constantinople. But the work for which the name of Anthemius was most remembered is the wall built from the Propontis of the Golden Horn to enclose the portion of the city which had grown up outside the wall of Constantine, a wall which substantially exists to this day. In 414, the administration of Anthemius came to an end, probably by death, and on 4th of July, Pulchera, the daughter of Arcadius, was proclaimed Augusta, a title that had not been granted to an emperor's sister since Trajan times, and henceforth, though only two years older than Theodosius, she exercised the functions of regent, and her bust was placed in the Senate House with those of the emperors. At the same time, Antiochus was removed from the palace. The court of Pulcheria was a strange contrast to her mother's. For political rather than religious reasons, she took a vow of perpetual virginity and induced her sisters to do the same, and the princesses spent their time in spinning and devout exercises. She herself was a ready speaker and writer in Greek and Latin, and she had her brother trained in rhetoric, as well as horsemanship and the use of arms, in ceremony and deportment, and the observances of religion. Hence he grew up a strict observer of the ecclesiastical rules, a fair scholar with a special interest in natural science and medicine, a keen huntsman, an excellent penman, exemplary in private life, mild and good-tempered. But, as everything likely to make him a capable ruler was excluded from his education, the emperor remained all his life a puppet in the hands of his sister, his wife, and his eunuchs. The transference of the regency to a girl of fifteen could not be effected without a change in the methods of administration, and it is therefore not surprising to find the government accused of fiscal oppression, while the sale of offices, which was restricted under Anthemius, became again a matter of public notoriety. In Alexandria, which, being almost equally divided between Christians, Jews, and heathens, was always turbulent, the change gave occasion for a serious outbreak. After prolonged rioting between Jews and Christians, the bishop Cyril instigated his followers to expel the Jews. This, the prefect Orestes reported to the emperor, while Cyril sent his own account, and Orestes, refusing to yield, some fanatical monks attacked and stoned him. The chief perpetrator was tortured to death, whereupon Cyril treated him as a martyr, and both parties appealed to Constantinople. It now came to be believed among Cyril's partisans that Orestes was acting under the influence of the celebrated mathematician and philosopher Hypatia, who was in constant communication with him. Accordingly, a party of Parabolani pulled her from her chariot, dragged her into the church called Caesarium, and beat or scraped her to death with tiles. 
At first, the government acted with some vigor. No personal punishment was inflicted, but the Parabolani were limited to 500, and the selection was made subject to the approbation of the Augustal and Praetorian prefects, while they were forbidden to appear in the council house or law courts, or at public spectacles. It was not long, however, before the influence or bribes of Cyril procured the restoration of the freedom of selection. The increase of anti-pagan feeling was also shown by a law excluding pagans from high administrative office and from the army. Other disturbances were the rebellion of Count Plintha in Palestine, an attack on the city prefect Actius, and a mutiny in the east. In Armenia, Yazdegerd having appointed his brother as king, the Roman portion of the country was definitely annexed and placed under a count. It was now time for Theodosius to marry, and it was Pulcheria's object to prevent the choice of a wife with powerful connections, who would be likely to endanger her ascendancy. She had by some means made the acquaintance of Athenais, daughter of the Athenian sophist Leontius, and a woman of high education and literary ability, who had come to Constantinople through a dispute with her brothers about their father's property. As a friendless girl, dependent on herself, yet fitted by education for the part of an empress, she seemed exactly suited for the purpose. The Augusta therefore introduced her to Theodosius, who declared himself willing to make her his wife. Athenais made no objection to accepting Christianity, and was baptized under the name of Eudokia, Pulcheria standing sponsor. And on the 7th of June, 421, the marriage was celebrated. The new empress bore no malice against her brothers, but summoned them to court, where one became prefect of Illyricum, and the other master of the offices. In this, however, she perhaps showed worldly wisdom rather than Christian charity. After the birth of a daughter, she received the title of Augusta. About the time of the marriage, the peace with Persia was broken. Yazdegerd had always shown himself friendly to the Christians, but at the end of his reign, the fanatical act of a bishop drove him to severe measures. Some Christians fled to Roman territory, and when their surrender was refused, the position became so critical that permission was given to the inhabitants of the exposed provinces to fortify their own lands. After Yazdegerd's violent death late in 420, a more extended persecution was begun by Warahran V, and the court of Constantinople began the war by sending the Alan Artaburius through Roman Armenia into Arezanine, where he defeated the Persian Narsai, who retreated to Nisibis. Artaburius, with numerous prisoners, advanced into Amida to prevent an invasion of Mesopotamia, and here, as the prisoners were starving, Bishop Acacius melted the church plate, ransomed them with the price, gave them provisions, and sent them home. Artaburius then besieged Nisibis, and Warafran prepared to march to its relief while he sent Al-Mundahir, Sheikh of Al-Hira, to invade Syria. Many of the Arabs were, however, drowned in the Euphrates, and the rest defeated by the general Vitianus. On the king's approach, Artaburius burnt his engines and retreated, and the Persians, crossing the frontier, vainly attacked Rasena for over a month. But, though the Roman gained some successes, no decisive victory was obtained, and Theodosius thought it best to propose terms. Warahran was also inclined for peace, but, wishing to gain a success first, he ordered an attack upon a Roman force while he kept the ambassador with him. The Romans were surprised, but during the battle another division under Procopius, the son-in-law of Anthemius, unexpectedly appeared, and the Persians, taken on both sides, were defeated. Warahran then took up the negotiations in earnest, and on his undertaking to stop the persecution and catch each party binding itself not to receive the Arab subjects of the other, peace was made for one hundred years. This victory was celebrated by Eudokia in an epic poem, it was probably the result of the transference of troops from Europe to meet the Persians that the Huns this year invaded Thrace, though in consequence of the prudent measures of Anthemius, the Danuban frontier was rarely violated before 441. The provinces had, however, not recovered from the calamities of Arcadius's time, and constant remissions of taxation were necessary.
The relations with the West were once again disturbed through the refusal of Theodosius to recognize the elevation of Constantius, and when after the death of Honorius, the obscure John was proclaimed emperor in prejudice of the claims of the young Valentinian, the son of Placidia. There was an open breach. When John's envoys arrived to ask for recognition, Theodosius threw them into prison. Placidia now received anew the title of Augusta, which Theodosius had before ignored. Valentinian was declared Caesar at Thessalonica. Mother and son were sent to Italy with a large army under Artaburius, his son Aspar, and Candidianus. And John, having been overthrown, Valentinian was invested with the empire. The concord between the two divisions of the empire was confirmed by the betrothal of Valentinian to Theodosius's daughter Eudoxia, and the victory celebrated by the building of the Golden Gate, through which the emperors made their formal entries into Constantinople. In 431, when Placidia needed assistance against the Vandals, an army under Aspar was sent to Africa, but Aspar returned three years later without success, probably after an understanding which made him ever after a friend of the Vandals. In 427, some Ostrogoths who had seceded from the Huns were settled in Thrace, and other tribes were received in 433, while a raid was made by the Huns and a more serious attack only prevented by abject submission to their demands. At sea, a pirate fleet entered the Propontis, but in 438, the pirate Contritus was captured. At home, stones were thrown at Theodosius in a riot after a famine in 431, and there were bitter complaints of the extortion of the eunuchs. Two matters of internal administration deserve special mention. The codification of the law and the foundation of the university at Constantinople as a counterpoise to the schools of Athens. In this university, there were 28 professors of Greek and Latin grammar and rhetoric, and two of law but only one of philosophy, and all other public teaching in the city was forbidden. Eudokia was at first of necessity subservient to her sister-in-law, but that she would always accept the position was not to be expected. A difference appeared in the time of the Synod of Ephesius, when Pulcheria was victorious, but afterwards her influence declined, and at last a palace intrigue drove her to retire from court. Under Eudokia's patronage, a large share of the administration fell to Cyrus, an Egyptian poet and philosopher who became city prefect in 435, and in 439 combined his office with the Praetorian prefecture. Cyrus was the first prefect who published decrees in Greek, and he also distinguished himself by renovating the buildings of the city, especially by an extension of the seawall to join the wall of Anthemius, which the capture of Carthage by the Vandals had made desirable. Antiochus, the emperor's old guardian, was restored to favor and made prepositus. End of section 55